You're listening to the Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Hey guys, Trent Fleskins here, your host of the Perth Property Show, and this one's really fun. Today we are talking about investing in apartments, the pros and cons, uh, why you would do it, why you wouldn't, how you're going to make money out of it, and how the value is value it. And of course, we've got Brendan Ptolemy in to help us on that valuation side. Brendan, thanks for coming in. Trent, thank you very much for having us. Always good to talk about all of these topics around property. Brendan, apartments is something that I'm not really an expert in, to be honest. I rent one, but buying one, selling one, uh, there are a lot of factors that are quite different to the land development side of things. Yeah. Uh, so let's run through them. Uh, so at Heron to White, we are analysing apartments on a rate per square meter frequently when we do the valuation. So people should probably be aware of that to begin with. Now that brings lots of sums into play. What apartment area we're going to use? So we use the living area, excluding balconies. We're not going to have any other common areas in there. So we want to find out what the living area of that apartment is. And obviously then we want to know what the purchase price is. We find that there are some developers that are really vague about the size of their apartments because there are a few points when they're building new apartments that are price sensitive and size sensitive in terms of the product they're bringing to the market. So a one-bedroom apartment is generally going to be 50-odd square metres or larger. Obviously, developers want to try and create You'd hope that. so, wouldn't you? Yes. Yeah, well, uh, the history of that, Trent, is that uh, essentially the banks don't want to lend any money on anything that's much smaller than a 50-square-metre apartment. Exactly right. Uh, and the mortgage insurers don't want to insure that product either. So people should be looking at that, number one. Number two is to make sure that the answers they're getting from the developer, especially if they're building off the plan, is that that size is correct. So sometimes the size is going to include the external walls and these kinds of funky ideas that change things. It should be to the internal wall of the uh, You should be able to get your measuring tape out yep. and get that 50 square metres. Yeah, exactly. So let's let's move on from the technicality a little bit. Um, what are those, those factors in terms of what people should be looking for? One of the scariest things I think for anybody, even us guys as valuers, is to buy something off the plan. I really struggle with the concept of I'm going to buy my biggest investment potentially it's an idea. without ever seeing it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you can obviously touch and feel the, um, the finishes in the display suite, but... Um, if, uh, one of the things for us uh, in apartments, and, and you know, let's just remember that Perth is a really immature apartment market. People are really struggling to get their heads around the idea that that's a good place to live. We think it's a great place to live because you can get into a location that you may not be able to afford a house, uh, but you could potentially go rent there, as, as you're alluding to, uh, to begin with, see whether you like living there, and then you can maybe get the option to actually buy in there as new complexes come along. But let's get back to what you're buying. Off the plan, you can't go and stand in that apartment. You can't get an idea of what the view is. You can't get an idea of what you can see from the balcony. The neighbours. Are, are you looking straight at a neighbour? Are you looking into a tree? Are you looking into an office building? Are you looking into a power lines? Those kinds of scenarios. So there's lots of things to be considered there. If you're buying a view, can you actually see what they're selling you? There might be a tree in the way that you might luck in and get the wrong apartment mm. where the, the tree from across the road blocks your view. The artist renders are very convenient sometimes. Absolutely. And even though the photography is really good from drones and things like that these days, you're just never sure how things can evolve in terms of the way they look in a photo. The other thing I've found with apartments is noise. Noise travels up from the ground level up an apartment dramatically. Uh, and people just need to get used to that idea. I'm not saying that an apartment's bad to live in because of the noise. I'm saying that people will be surprised how much noise travels up an apartment block to a certain height. 
uh, and that can just be the cars going past on the street below. So you don't even have to be on a busy street, even if you're in the quietest street in Perth. Each time a car comes past or a motorbike or whatever, the noise from that travels up the building and it actually echoes from the underside of the balcony. And that's something that people need to get an idea of and you can't do that again off the plan. When we talk about price values and property and investing, generally as a rule, one of the number one rules of thumb is land goes up, houses go down. Land appreciates, houses depreciates. While we get depreciation reports, while we pay land tax, while we get capital gains, it generally comes from appreciation on land. With apartments, we're obviously 70, 80 square metres of land that we've shared with 15 other people on our building. Yeah. Again, people need to get their heads around the fact that they might not be buying that apartment for capital growth. So an investor might be buying it for rental return and a solid rental return over a long period of time, as well as the ability to depreciate the asset. A first home buyer or a second home buyer or as we're seeing a lot of at the moment, downsizers might be buying it for lifestyle opportunity. So you might go in there and say, right, first home buyer scenario, I'm going to go and spend $375,000 on this apartment. I'm going to live here for the next five years. I'm happy that might still be worth similar numbers or maybe a little bit more towards the end. But my focus while I live here is to absolutely smash that mortgage and therefore create equity in an asset so that I can use that into the future. Mm. From a downsizer's point of view, they're probably doing that in reverse. So I've got a 1,000 square meter block I'm living on out in suburbia. It doesn't have to be that big. Anything above 500 square meters is hard to look after. I've got a block and a house that I can't maintain anymore because I'm getting slightly older and I want to move on in my life. So I'm going to go and buy a downsizer unit. And what we're seeing is lots of downsizers buy three-bedroom, two-bathroom type apartments, and they're looking for the fundamentals in terms of good value for money and great location. So in both scenarios, whether you're the first-home buyer or the downsizer, you want a great location where you're buying into a lifestyle. And that lifestyle might be that you're on the beach, you're on a train line, you're near the city, you're right on top of a cafe strip, those types of scenarios. You might be close to family so that you can walk out the front door and go and see your family every single morning. You don't want to be reducing your living space that much, but you do want to simplify life by getting rid of the backyard and also increase that amenity score and that lifestyle. Maybe it's a little bit lonely out in the suburbs or it's just getting a little bit hard to look after those ferns out the back we can get rid of that and head right down to a position where pop down to the bottom of the elevator cafes are there walk the dog you're on the beach or you're in the city uh, and life's good yeah absolutely that gets that spare time that was being spent in the garden you might be sitting on the balcony enjoying your view or as you say out going for your morning walk with the dog those kinds of scenarios are using your time in a different way So let's just pinpoint if we're going to be looking at investing in apartments or buying and with an idea of making money anyway as a home, what do valuers look at other than that square meterage rate that might make it a bit easier to make some money going forward? Yeah, so there's some really simplistic fundamentals that people don't think about so much. And uh, so after we move past where the complex is, so let's just think about where's the complex. Is yep. it uh, close to Perth City or is it close to a strip-type shopping hub? There needs to be a reason to make an alternative choice of living in an apartment, doesn't yeah. there? Yeah, absolutely. And some of the areas that we've seen do them do the gentrification into apartments really well over the years is Subiaco's done it well, though could have done it better, probably needed some more density. Hopefully in this time around. Uh, this time around, hopefully the development will get off the ground. Claremont is a great example of where they the did fantastically doing a great job there. Yep. So park outside the front door. Funnily enough, some of the infrastructure was already there. So train station, shopping centre, 50-metre pool, mini golf course, lots of parkland. Schools. Schools all there as well. 
then you can come along to, say, somewhere like West Leaderville. So a number of large complexes being built on ex-commercial use lots, some of them almost an industrial-type use being converted. But what you've got there is cafes down on the ground level, great connection into the Perth CBD, train stations right outside the front door. And so you get that lifestyle opportunity of being able to connect all of those things together. So what people should be looking for once you then go to the micro level is when you're in the complex, how does it look and, and what are the ancillary improvements? So the bigger the complex, the better they're going to be. But just bear in mind that there'll be strata fees for those upkeep. So there's one option to go down the path of a smaller complex with very low level of common area facilities. Might yep. just be a lounge and some security, that kind of thing. Thousand bucks a year sort of Exactly. Thing. Low strata fees. Yep. Through to the other end of the scale where you might have theatrettes and putting courses and swimming pools, swimming pools gyms. and gyms and all those kinds of things. And all those things need to be insured and maintained. Thousands and thousands of dollars so, a year for something you may never use. Yeah, you want to make sure that you're using those. Then down to your actual apartment. So you want to have a look at balcony size. Extremely important factor in the Perth marketplace. We all love living outside. You want to make sure that you've got a balcony that you can sit on most days of the year. Then the next factor on that balcony and even the amenity of your apartment is which way does it face? Often as a value, we'll walk into a south-facing apartment and stand there and think, well, hang on, the people that live in this apartment never get any direct sunlight mm-hmm. into this apartment. Because there's only one window. Exactly. It's the balcony. It's facing south yeah. and it's always in shadow. So think about that north-facing concept in Perth where the sun and the solstice means that in winter you can be in an apartment with this all free Beautiful warm sunshine coming through onto your balcony, which you can use all year round. And essentially, you're out of the southwest prevailing wind as well. And then that can permeate into your apartment and warm up your apartment to save you some money on on, uh, some energy costs as well. Now, when we talk apartments, we very often think about the 30-floor buildings in East Perth and the Ritz-Carlton coming up at at Elizabeth Quay, which is an interesting topic in itself. But we don't often think about this new type of product that's come in the last cycle, that boutique apartment, where instead of someone choosing to build a triplex and an R40 zoning, they've gone and had the ability to build maybe six to ten boutique apartments on 800 square meters. Yeah. How do they go these days and what sort of lifestyle are they providing compared to your 30-floor apartment buildings? Yeah, so they're, they're providing new products for first home buyers and downsizers and even families potentially in established locations. And it is creating some butting of heads, some issues from a planning point of view. And suburbs that we're seeing this happen in are places like Mount Hawthorne, Mount Lawley, Bayswater, Maylands, through into Como, down into the Canning Bridge area there. Uh, now, the benefit we've touched on is lower holding costs in terms of the cost of running those buildings. It can also mean cheaper getting costs. So if you take a penthouse apartment in one of those units, you might be sharing your one common wall with a neighbouring apartment, which is next door. Mm. If you take the same value of that, might be around a million dollars or slightly less, you put that into a big apartment complex and you're probably one of three or four or five apartments on a floor and you'll have neighbours above you, below you and either side of you. So uh, less people around probably creates or definitely creates a better amenity for the person buying into that apartment. I find that the difference is you find a lot of young people in their 20s, early 30s getting into these boutique ones. You touched on Mount Hawthorne, Leaderville, Mount Lawley. For me, it's kids coming out of their first grad job, they've saved really well, they're 
parents probably in a pretty good position being in these suburbs and we've grown up in that lifestyle that in our late 20s we're pretty used to that Mount Lawley, Mount Hawthorne area but we can't afford the million dollar house that parents live in. We want to stay in the area and we like the amenity score of these places. We don't like looking after gardens so this is a perfect option. Two by two, two by one, dollars $500,000 gets us into the suburb, keeps us close to our family and our lifestyle we've always enjoyed, and we're on the property market. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is a really interesting thing to look at those price points now because they have corrected a fair bit. So one by one in some of those complexes may now be the same type of value of, as buying a house and land package out in the suburbs. And if you compare the lifestyle amenity of living out in the suburbs in that new suburb to essentially that established suburb where there's everything from reasons to live there exactly yeah you're starting with there's uh homeless people through to cafes through to really expensive property all around the place and you've got that diversity there that's been created over a long period of time and and really good reasons to live there yeah currently just from your perspective if you were buying an apartment what top three factors would you look at if you had to pick three before going and looking at home opens yeah and so not necessarily for me to be recommending these three but uh, essentially i'd be looking at complex size uh definitely want to look at your ongoing costs so make sure you understand what your strata fees are going to be so how many apartments are in the building yep what's the strata costs Yep. What's the amenity you get for that strata cost? Yep, so yep. it's fine for you to be paying that strata cost if you are going to go to the, use the gym every day, mm. uh, go to the pool, and obviously use the lifts and all those kinds of things that have to be run in that building. It might work out cheaper than a gym membership. Exactly, exactly. So you might be spending your money in a different way. Then the next thing to look at from there would be obviously the location of the complex. You want to be in the right suburb. Then you get more granular after that. Am I on the north side of the building? Where's the prevailing breeze come from? Am I able to use the balcony? Uh, inside, you want to look at the layout. So where's the main bedroom versus the kitchen versus the bathrooms, those kinds of scenarios? Have I got the view? How long is the view going to last for? Is the trees across the road going to grow up over the next year or so and, and knock that view out that I'm paying for? And that ties into that first point you made today, and that was off the plan, a bit risky. Yep. You want to at least see that view. Yeah, absolutely. And Trent, what we said off air was essentially we're in a marketplace where there is a supply of established apartments for the first time probably ever in Perth properly. And so it's an opportunity for buyers to actually go and walk through all of their options and get an idea of what it looks and feels like before they buy. So not so much a requirement to go and buy off the plan. Have we hit the bottom of the apartment market in Perth? It's been stained for many years now. Yeah, and look, we we haven't ever been too concerned about the oversupply because there's not a huge amount coming into our marketplace when compared to the East Coast scenarios. Uh, but I, th- I think we probably have hit the bottom in good locations. We would still be concerned about the apartment market in suburban locations. So there are some scenarios where, for planning reasons, developers have to build apartments at a shopping centre or at a beachside location, those kinds of things. We're just not sure that if they're not right on top of established infrastructure in established suburbs, that those, are, those apartments are going to go well from a capital value point of view. Yeah, Brendan, really interesting topic today. Thanks for coming in. We'll have you in soon. Cheers. Thanks, Trent. Now, today's suburb spotlight is one that's really interesting for me. We've got Rick Hockey... Headland's number one agent has been for a long time. He's come down from Port Headland to have a chat with us today in the studio. Rick, thanks for coming down and talking about your suburb, Port Headland and South Headland. Yeah, thanks very much, Trent. Pleasure to be here. Got a fair bit happening up there at the moment. It has, hasn't it? What a weekend it's been. It has. We've got a a cyclone and also pretty heavy flooding. 
Yeah, well, fingers crossed for everyone up in Headland that's faced this throughout the weekend. So what we're going to do is, I guess, get on and talk about a bit of history as to what's been happening in Headland Gee, since you've been there, and that's been a few decades, hasn't it? Yeah, look, I got in Port Hedland 1980. Uh, love the place. Uh, we had all three kids there. Me and my wife were going around Australia, and we've been there ever since from 1980. But on Port Hedland, uh, founded in 1863, it was named after Peter Hedland. He was the first European to reach the harbour in uh, 1857. So a little bit longer history than you've been around. A little bit longer, mate, yeah. <laughs> I'm not that old. Um, but, yeah, it started off as a pearling port um, and beginning of 1888 as also tin and gold in the Pilbara. And, of course, we know now it's quite diversified and it's gone out into iron ore, lithium, cattle, manganese and, yeah, quite a few other resources. We all know about what's happened in Headland uh, over the last 10 to 15 years. One important point is the diversification that's coming into the town, that we're not just a one-trick pony anymore. Is that a message that the town is looking to put out to the rest of the country? Yeah, look, I think so. We were very much a one-trick town. Now we do have um, some diversification happening there. And that's already happening, but we've also got on the back burner maybe uh, oil and gas, which is only 150 kilometres off the coast of Port Hedland. So, you know, within the next three to five years, there may be even more diversification. It's certainly going that way to strengthen the town and make it more resilient. If we look at Port Hedland on the map, we can see it's quite a skinny little space there. And does that explain why South Hedland exists, essentially? There's not really, there hasn't been enough space to build in the first place to build out? Yeah, so uh, basically there's Port Hedland and South Hedland. There's about 13, 14 kilometres that separate the two with one major road. What's going on in there? Well, the port itself is on higher ground and there are tidal flats, so that does stop a lot of, of being able to build in between the two towns. But certainly Port, you know, that's probably got a third of the population now that South Hedland, which has, has some major infrastructure or more of the major infrastructure, that has two-thirds of the population out there. So would it be right to assume that Port Hedland is built out, uh, the only way you can go is up, and that South Hedland really is the place where it has the opportunity just geographically to expand over time? Port Hedland does have the potential to go up, and that's just zoning changes and that that needs to happen there. There is some uh, more land that can be reclaimed, but it's a bit costly because you have to bring in fill. In South Hedland, it's much flatter out there, and it hasn't got so much of the problems with the tidal creek, so the potential is to expand a lot more in South and Port. Is it also right to assume that the mo- most people that live in Hedland, Port or South, are FIFO workers. Are there families and single people from other uh, backgrounds that just like living there for the sake of it? Oh, very much so. The fly-in, fly-out workforce is mainly in the camps. Uh, we've had a big swing towards people wanting to buy their own home. 90, 90 to 95% of my sales are, are homeowners who are locals. We're very multicultural there as well, and it's growing. We had a lot of investors and that that were buying, and... and uh, Back in 2010, it would have been 90% or 95% of investors that bought our properties. Now that swing has gone back, so we're coming back to a bit of a more of a normalised market. Well, my conversations I have with Brendan Ptolemy at Heron Todd White, we always chat about the area up there because it's a, it's a topic for us. And we, you know, we chat about the history and the story that's gone on in the last 10 years. But one good news story that's coming from the valuers in the last year is that that area in Headland and Caratha as well, it's definitely hit a bottom in the last year, year and a half. Market uh, volume has picked up 
markedly, and we're even seeing some gains. Are you seeing that on the ground as well? Yeah, look, we have, and it's true that we have hit the bottom. Um, Probably over the last eight months we've noticed that and it's plateaued out. We have found a little bit of strength in our rentals. We've had between 50 and and $100 increase over the last eight months. So normally we'd find the market, the rentals move first, and then the sales. We are still selling property, and you can sell property as long as it's marketed properly and, and you work pretty hard at it. It is a tough market, but it can be done. Um, well, so- Rick, you sold how many properties <laughs> last year? 90-something? <laughs> Obviously, you can sell a property in Headland. Yeah, look, it was, it was pretty good. I think we were averaging 11 properties. I was averaging 11 properties, or my team was, um, per month. So it was it was pretty outstanding. And once again, I'll say it was uh, all to do with local people who want to live and make Port Hedland their home. But obviously on the one side where a buyer might feel like they're getting a bit of a discount, a bit of a win compared to what's happened in the last 10 years, I guess a hard part of your job is setting expectations for sellers who are selling clearly for a reason. Yeah, look, and there, there is a, a few different reasons as to why people sell. There, there's some stress stress sales out there. There's no doubt about that, and that has been uh, quite heavy in our market over the last two to three years because we've had up to a 60 to 70% pullback in the market, and that started in late 2012. So it has pulled back a lot. Where we sit at the moment, everybody who buys a property in Port Hedland buys it well and truly below replacement costs, but it's just starting to inch back up, and we would see the, you know, the next three, five years. It will continue to inch up. Um, no more boom and bust, and, and that's a big thing. A lot of people ring me and say, oh, yeah, no, but it'll boom again because it always booms in Port Hedland. Well, it won't, and uh, the reason I say that is because the infrastructure of Port Hedland has changed with all of the camps and that, that the mining camps that they have. And the mining companies make it quite clear that any construction work that will happen, it will be a fly-in, fly-out workforce. But if you work permanently in Port Hedland, South Hedland, The preference is you live in Port Hedland. Yeah, okay. So what the mining companies are doing are creating a bit of a buffer on the supply level so that if demand does pick up, you don't see those massive peaks in rental prices and house prices going up unsustainably. Probably a a risk-mitigating benefit, if we're honest. Yeah, we go back to the heady days when prices were sky high, 2010, and we didn't cater for that at all. We were virtually leasing properties out per room, not per house. So you know, it might be $500 per per room in that house, or $750 per room in that house. Now we're we're a lot better structured in that we can handle um, any more construction work that will come along. They will fl- be flying, flyed out. Uh, the camps are still there. BHP took a 10-year plus 10-year lease out on Port Haven. And collectively, the camps up there can handle between four, four and a half thousand people. Well, that's a whole project, really, isn't it? So uh, what we're essentially working on here, and you mentioned it before, is a recognition of a market that is below replacement value. Now, that's just a fundamental reason. That isn't a peak and trough reason, a boom and bust reason. That's just a reality that if properties or any assets are being sold below replacement value, they're most likely undervalued and people will see value in that. So I guess you would agree that until we see a point where houses are selling for what someone could build for, which I guess is non-existent right now, we're going to continue to see that steady rise. Yeah, look, look, that's right. Every property that I sell now is well and truly under replacement costs. You know, when we were at the peak of the market, it was an abnormal market where we had, you know, some rents were $5,000 per week high. 
So that was an abnormal market, but I still see today's market is abnormal because it's abnormally low now. Now we just have that where we're going to inch up over the next few years, and as you say, we go back to replacement costs, then we have a normalised market, and I think that will happen over the next three to five years. And a thing to recognise in terms of replacement costs uh, is that the replacement cost of building a house up in Port Hedland is very different to building a house in Perth. Let's say that you could build a house in somewhere between $200,000 and $250,000, just a standard project home. What would it cost to build a house up there? Well, a standard 4 by 2 which was built out in Elements, and that was only, and there hasn't been any building going up there for obvious reasons. But one that was built out there about 18 months ago, it was on a 500 square metre block, and just the house itself with the fences and everything up was 550000 Yeah, That's without... The cost of the block. Yeah, at, and, and the block is essentially pocket money right now, isn't it? So, yes. And that's because no one would build on it. So that is the recognition there that we are well below replacement value of an, of an, and a property is just, just simply an asset. So uh, we are undervalued in that area and it comes down to ensuring probably from market perception, I guess, that if we're going to be buying as investors which we're not seeing a lot of at the moment. As you said, 90% of the purchases are owner-occupied. We're going to get a rental return. Do you have any information on the demand for rentals coming through? Are you getting good yields up there? Look, there are some good yields up there, and we do have some institutional investors. So, you know, this is how they make their living, by putting groups of people together and buying stuff. So I must say that I have sold quite a few um, units in that Um and that that has gone to institutional investors. The mum and dad investors, no, not so much at all. But certainly, there's people there who have look who are looking for a market that's bottomed out and is now starting to find strength. And our market seems to be that one. Okay, so from the last few months, let's start talking about if you were uh, going to follow that Pied Piper institutional investor, what are we paying for these properties? Let's start from the bottom, uh, one by one unit, and let's get up to the four by twos or the five by threes. What are the price points there? Yeah, look, price points uh, in, in a port, just as an example, can be around the 150 to 170,000 for a one bedroom, one bathroom. That's probably only about six, seven years old, uh, fully furnished. Um, and, and then you can step up to your, your two by twos. If they're in Port Helen, they can be around uh, the 220 to 250 mark. Um, four by twos on average, and there is a difference between port and south. You'll pay less out in, out in south, but I've just uh, put a four by two in Pretty Pool under offer at 590000 So depending on what it is, it can vary between five hundred and sixty to 600000 for a four by two that's fairly neat and tidy. What was that selling for in the boom? Could be up to one point two. Million. Yeah. I do remember uh, one morning that I was on Sutherland Street and I went to a house and I had that listed for sale and I walked in there on a Saturday morning and got an offer of 2.2 million. It was just under a thousand square meters, so it was a, a prime block for developers and it was a development company. As I was walking out of the property, I'd done that deal. Uh, the People next door were sitting out in the veranda having a cup of tea and they sort of yelled out, oh, what are you up to? So I went and had a chat to them and I said, I've just sold that property for $2.2 million. And they said, if you could get 2.2 for this? And I said, yeah, give me a minute. So without leaving the property, I just went down to the front fence, rang the developers and they bought that one the same morning for 2.2. 
as well. Now, those same, same properties I have resold since, and they've gone for around the 500, 550 mark. Wow. Wow. That's a big wow. Yeah. So um, which properties have held their value the most? Um, in general, it's been four by twos, mm. uh, neat and tidy four by twos, whether they be in port or south. They're still highly sought after. In the old days, a lot of three by ones were built. So the three by twos, four by twos are pretty popular, yeah. Okay. So you just mentioned the plight of the development dream up there. Is anyone developing in, in Headland anymore? No, look, there's no development going on and it goes back to that, you know, why would you do any development up there when the the cost of building something is far greater than you can just walk into the market and and buy something for half that price? So I guess it's a recognition of there being a need to soak up that oversupply that's happened years ago. Uh, But what that does give, if there is rental return still, which is obviously higher than Perth to get in, for that investor, it gives a level of surety that you're not going to have any more supply come on for a very long time. And therefore, if the numbers work for you now, they're most likely going to continue to work well for you for years to come, as long as that property is still rentable for those you know, those, those coming years. Yeah. Look, at the moment, uh, properties that aren't looked after and they don't have uh, you know their maintenance and all that sort of stuff done, they will still struggle. But anything that's neat and tidy doesn't take long to lease out. And yes, there's, there's not going to be any building um, in the short term that's out there. To give you an example of how things have shifted, though, if we go back uh, three to four years ago, we had 450 properties for lease and 450 properties for sale on the market. Today, with both leasing and for sales, we we bounce around the, the 160 to about 220. So we bounce around there. So has been quite a big shift in the market as we work our way back up the ladder. All right. So I'm going to ask you the same question I ask every single number one real estate agent that comes in every week, Rick, and that's the median house price question. Do we have a median house price uh, worth mentioning in Headland? Look, I can tell you back in the uh, heady old days that in Port there was somewhere up around the eight nine hundred thousand in South it was about six seven hundred thousand. Uh, where do we sit now in Port? It's probably around that four hundred and fifty thousand, and in South it's probably uh, sitting somewhere around that two fifty two fifty three hundred thousand. Would a fair value be somewhere in between the two highs and lows? I would say you go back to your replacement costs and that's where the fair value is. So that would sit in between there for sure. As I say, we're so low now, that is a very abnormal market. We're we're too low. Normal market is really around those replacement costs. All right, so if you were going to buy a property... At that median price today, what would you oh, get? All right, I would go back with what I said before. Four by two seem to hold their price really well and also for rentals. But in saying that, anything that's neat and tidy and as long as it's in a reasonably good area, in Headland where we're going with so much diversity and you know the mining companies are opening their purses a, a bit again, I think anything that's neat and tidy, well-maintained, one-bedroom, two-bedroom, right up to six bedrooms, which we do have, they will do. They will perform well. But you must have your house maintained. In the old days, you could get away with a house that was in very poor condition and you'd still get a, you know, a good rental for it. But that's, that's not the case today. Rick Hockey, thank you very much in this testing time with uh, Port Hedland and South Hedland 
with the cyclone. Thank you for coming uh, down to chat to us, and I hope everything uh, in the aftermath turns out for the best. Yep, and no, I'm certainly hoping it, it's uh, good for all Port and South Headland, and thank you very much for inviting me in. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Trent. Thanks, Rick. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!